Um, we might make a start. Yeah. Um, firstly, thank you all so much for coming out today and braving the change of weather. Um, before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Yellencut Willem as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. Um, the Yellencut Willem are part of the Boorang, one of the five uh, major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors and their elders past, present and future. Um, so I'm to introduce myself. My name is Laura Phillips and I'm the editor of Open Journal, which is um, an advocacy initiative launched by Neo Metro, which is the first B Corp property developer in Australia. Um, we run these High Density Happiness Speaker Series for the... This is the third year now and the last of our um, season with the M Pavilion for this year. Um, so to introduce the speakers here tonight, um, we're here to discuss the alternative housing models, uh, oh, so, sorry, alternative ownership models of housing, obviously a hot topic within the property market in Australia at the moment, and I suppose the variety of voices we have um, here tonight come from a variety of different perspectives within this industry, so it'd be good, to, I suppose, to have their opinions, um, to open up a broader discussion and take some audience questions at the end, if anyone has any, which would be great. Um, so to introduce the speakers, um, to my far left we have Nicola Foxworthy, who's from Common Equity Housing Australia. To my direct left, Tim Riley from Property Collectives. Um, to my right, Tom Elves from the University of Melbourne. And my far right, Catherine Sunderman, who's from MGS Architects. So I might just open up with the first question, um, and it'll be an opportunity for everyone, each of the speakers, to kind of give a bit of an overview of where they're coming from and their position on the topic, um, with what are alternative models for development? And I might start with Tom. <laughs> okay, away. I'm off. Um, well, good evening, everyone. Uh, thanks for coming out tonight. It's a bit nicer weather than uh, the previous uh, talks here um, in the last few weeks. But... Um, on the question of alternative ownership and I guess where I'm coming from uh, on that, I, I work these days as a housing academic at the University of Melbourne and uh, so I guess I can probably say a few things along the way through the night to sort of put, um, I guess, ownership into perspective uh, in Melbourne and in Australia in, in the housing system. Uh, but a, a number of years ago, um, I was working at the Office of the Government Architect and the Government Architect at the time, Geoffrey London, um, asked me to look into, um, I guess, some cooperative, cooperative uh, development uh, processes and I'd just um, recently completed a um, PhD at uh, Swinburne University where I'd been looking at medium density housing development and a lot of the issues uh, that that brought up for local councils and for local communities as um, urban intensification was occurring in uh, their particular municipalities. And, of course, that has only gone uh, on and on and, uh, and then moved up into uh, much higher density forms of, uh, of urban redevelopment and, uh, in particular, a real spate of apartment development uh, in the last few years. And, um, and in my professional role then, I was very involved in looking at, I guess, how that was regulated and managed through the planning system and, and was involved in preparing um, apartment design standards to um, be part of that process as well. But with uh, academic colleagues... I became very interested in, I guess, um, how the understanding that I developed of the housing system and the development process uh, worked alongside these problems and how they could be addressed through perhaps looking at the development process um, a bit differently and uh, asking, uh, I guess, different questions of it and, and, and uh, at a sort of housing system level looking at uh, where the best places were to intervene. And if you look at... Um, how housing is developed here in Melbourne. Um, we've got a lot, still 50% of our housing is new detached housing in new suburban developments at the urban fringe and um, the vast majority of that new housing is uh, developed for, um, for home ownership. A lot of it is first home ownership as well. And then much more recently we've had this spate of um, higher density um, housing, uh, particularly uh, located within the inner city, particularly in a very dense um, developments, very dense by international standards. And a lot of that housing actually is um, actually being occupied, uh, not by owner-occupiers, but by renters. Obviously, somebody does own it. Um, but the, the question for me was really, how, how could we bring together the development process and the, the different types of tenure that we have um, in Australia uh, that, that dominate. So in, in, 
in Australia, we have around 67% um, of households are homeowners or have mortgages. And, um, and that's a very high number internationally, but it's been at that high level for over a century. So there's some interesting things about, about that, um, which I won't go into now, but, um, and, and yet uh, most of that has been um, detached housing uh, production that has uh, fueled the growth of new ownership, whereas only around 7% of um, apartments are owner-occupied. So why is that the case and how can we actually um, shift that? So, so looking into that, um, it became apparent that actually within the development process itself, um, it, it really was um, geared towards um, an investor uh, and supply-side uh, driven model and that there isn't, um, for, for a number of reasons um, that, again, we can go into later but I won't uh, dwell on now, um, uh, very, it's a very limited opportunity for owner uh, or would-be owner-occupiers to actually engage in that development process. So with um, a colleague of mine who's now at RMIT called Andrea Sharon, we looked at, I guess, theorising how that would be the case and we produced a report a few years ago called um, Making Apartments Affordable, which looked at uh, the idea of ways of bringing in um, the... Uh, potential future occupant as a potential future uh, owner-occupier of apartments into the development process and what would need to change within the housing system to make that possible. And uh, again, I won't go into all the details now, but, but um, crucially it comes down to, uh, I guess, um, issues around um, development finance and the risks uh, around de the development process and how these might be reconceived if you think about um, housing demand uh, not as uh, something speculative, but something that you can perhaps aggregate and be more certain of. And, and I know other contributors here tonight are going to talk a little bit more about that in different ways as well. So that's kind of me in, that, in a nutshell to start with. And those different methods, obviously Tim and Nicola would have a lot to, to breathe into. Would you have any, would your position on that, on that topic? Well, um, I actually attended the launch of the report that Tom was alluding to there a few years ago now and um, part of that report I think um, a big part of that report was you and Andrea coining this terminology around deliberative development um, which was not a term that I'd seen previously no, We made it um, up You made it up <laughs> um, and it is a hard one I think I mean the question is about well, what, it, what are alternative models of development and there's, there's actually heaps of different models and um, it, there's a sort of a, a very long established history throughout Europe um, for different sort of housing cooperative models um, of different scales um, operating in a different market context but I think generally my view and I'm still learning about the space is that at the highest level they seem to all be um, organisations or legal entities that are set up to deliver housing principally cheaply, maybe at cost or, you know, close to at cost. Um, so they have sort of very much an affordability angle to them, but then they also sort of share broadly democratic kind of ideals and sort of self-management features around them, um, whether it's to produce housing for own occupation or housing for, for, for rental, you know, cheaper rental. The different models seem to all sort of have those characteristics. Yeah, I think the, the question around co-op management model for housing for me is it's a very broad question. It's not just constrained to ownership from my perspective, but even the notion of co-op ownership is a really interesting space that, that my organisation is... is currently exploring right now as an organisation. We are a resource body for 111 housing co-ops right across Victoria, but they're rental co-ops. They're not ownership. No, none, none of those members have brought their own capital to their housing in this way. And actually, in Victoria at least, and pretty much around Australia, there's very little... Very The, the existing uh, owner co-ops, uh, it's a very, very, very small market and not without its problems, and that's partly because the structures around what a housing co-op needs to do and look like to be able to, to manage capital well is, is an interesting question. But it's also about the structure of the capital market and, and what that means 
uh, in a market that really has a sort of massive dichotomy between a, a short-term rental market and a full-blown you know, total control owner, if you can get to that, and there's nothing in the middle. And so for me, the question about what's the alternatives here is a, a really big question about alternative tenures. How, how would we broaden out both the, the range of tenures that are available, the notion of ownership and how you might hold those tenures, but also the range of products that are available, because I think part of the response to the speculative market is that somebody builds something and you decide whether you, or not you want it being able to have more influence on the range of things that you might want uh, is limited and, and the develop, deliberative development is one, one way, but you know, uh, right now a very small way of being able to influence that. But it means that there are a range of people who can't access the housing that they might need or want or be prepared to trade for for a period of time in some other way. And, and that kind of uh, sits with a housing market that is really quite constrained in what it can possibly offer and I guess that's where my interest comes from. And Catherine from your perspective? Yes so I guess just to kind of I know this is really confusing there's so many different models they're all overlapping some are about rentals some are about ownership but I think more broadly this deliberative development model is in contrast to speculative development which is about market-led housing and I think um, back to your comment before about most new apartments are for investors and so what do you get if your apartments are built for investors? You end up getting quite a generic kind of product often, not always, um, and you get a model where people aren't engaged in the production of that model so they might not get the options they want, they might not get the rooftop garden that they want because it's, they haven't been part of that decision making process. So basically, deliberative development is in contrast to that, where they are involved in that process. And I think, as we've touched on some of the benefits already, but obviously a big one is affordability. So as you were saying, um, because you don't need to make a profit from the process, and because you don't need to have a marketing suite or a you know, real estate agent, you can save up to 30% on the total cost of that apartment. And so that's obviously a massive possibility. I think another thing that's really great about this model is that you get a lot of design quality and more sustainable features. Because obviously if you know that you... If you are going to be living in that place for the next 10 to 20 years, you're going to start looking at those options of having solar panels because you know that you'll be able to pay that off in a lifetime. You're going to look at having a more robustly built apartment because you know that you're going to be living there over time. And I think the final thing that makes these models really interesting is that you, if you are part of this group that are collectively making this new apartment building, you might choose to have more shared facilities, you might choose to have shared laundry, you might choose to have a shared rooftop garden, you might choose not to have car parking. There's so many options available that aren't available from a standard market model. So I guess that's why I'm interested in deliberative development. I think it'd be good just to, I suppose, discuss the different uh, different models because there are, I suppose, so many that are, you know, brought up, especially um, in in the wake of Nightingale and, and the incredible press attention that that model has received. Obviously, there's Baugruppen and in in the Germany, there's models throughout Switzerland and Scandinavia which have been in place for decades. So I suppose, and obviously, property collectives with Tim would be able to, you know, comment most closely. Um, what elements from those models have you seen which do you think work and which doesn't work, maybe as a case study for what you know, could be possible here? Tom, do you want to start off? Yeah, well, I mean, the question of what... They, they all work in their own um, context in those uh, other countries and the question really is well, what can work in the Australian system or what would we need to change about the Australian system in order to make things that we might want to achieve for other reasons work here? And um, the... I mean, you, you mentioned a, you know, a few examples there. Nightingale um, is, a, is one, and that's a, a great one because it's, you know, there's now built projects that we can um, look at and talk to. Um, but there's, um, there's a suite of things. So I guess I, I initially I, I suppose I'll try and sort of lay out, I guess, what that spectrum is, if, that, if that's helpful. Um, so, I mean, obviously we're talking, I think Nicola used the word, uh, Tim used the word tenure um, before, which talks about, I guess, the relationship between a household and, and the house that they're in. And, and within that, um, within, you know, amongst different tenures, really we only have um, well, two in Australia, uh, <laughs> which is ownership and rental. 
Um, and then within rental, we have um, private market rental and we have social rental uh, where, where people you know, in public or social housing uh, rent from a, a public or social landlord rather than a private um, landlord. Uh, and, and, and these um, particular tenures are, uh, have different sort of market shares, if you like, and, and as I said earlier, home ownership has the lion's share of, of the, the market uh, in Australia. And, uh, and then within rental, um, you know, social housing is extremely residualised and in, in Victoria even more so. We only have around 3% social housing in Victoria, which is incredibly low, um, incredibly low and, and ridiculously low, really. And shrinking. And shrinking. Because the, the supply is not growing and so as population grows, that yeah. proportion shrinks. Yeah, yeah. So... so yeah, so firstly, wanting to couch this conversation within that particular spectrum and, and what that means on the international field. But then if we're looking at, uh, at ownership as a particular tenure, um, what we've seen is while the overall um, rate of ownership has not declined very much, uh, what has happened is it's been much harder for people entering home ownership for the first time to do so at all and also to do so within particular locations and obviously um, well service locations um, close to jobs and and transport and the like so we've seen a um, we've seen a, I guess a social equity dimension coming into it as well and and then of course there's the um, the sustainability of the urban region and of housing which is another question again but um, so sticking with ownership uh, the established model is that you can uh, you know, the long-established model over many, uh, many, many decades is that you know, land is developed and subdivided and then you can go and buy a house and land package and the separation of the sale of land and the development of land from the construction uh, contract for the house uh, keeps the price down. Uh, with multi-unit housing, it's been a small part of the, the owner uh, market, but it's a more expensive part. And, um, and that's, you know, for various reasons, costs are higher. So what we've seen in, in, in these recent innovations is an attempt to expand ownership to a greater proportion of the population in those locations where people want to live but can't and where people um, who can't uh, normally afford to enter their own occupier market in those locations uh, perhaps might be able to. And so within that range of ambition then. Uh, there's things like a cooperative um, ownership model, uh, which would be where uh, rather than individuals or individual households purchasing that uh, collectively a group of people um, in, have a, a shared ownership of a multi-residential development or building that they then each have a, a share in or a part of a, a cooperative that owns and, and that they have a right to use part of that. So that's, that's one thing. But then at the other, um, as you get further along, um, you get uh, the ambition where at the end of the day each person or each household is, is an owner-occupier in the traditional sense, but where their engagement with the development process becomes very different and... Uh, and we're able to access um, medium density housing and, and higher density housing in uh, more sought after locations at cheaper prices. And so the Nightingale has been really um, you know, a significant step in that direction um, by, you know, and you know, Catherine's already named that the range of things that are done to reduce price. But at the end of the day, it's to this point been a fairly standard development model, but with a stronger social and environmental ambition. What um, is exciting about the next step in that process, and where Nightingale itself has been trying to head as well, is, um, is the, um, I mean, uh, Catherine used the word Baugruppen, which is the, the German model of it, but there's other examples around the world too, and, and they've been, um, there've been a couple of attempts here in Australia as well, um, where the actual people who are intending to occupy become the developer. So in other words, there's not a third party developer, <laughs> the, the owner is the developer, which is, in effect, how it works with um, detached housing. I think it would be good to just firstly get Tim's opinion because in starting property collectives, you would have obviously assessed what others provide and maybe seen where your niche was. How did, how did you see the pros and cons of existing models? It wasn't, it wasn't really that strategic <laughs> for me. Um, it was more simply that... Um, uh, I had a friend who's who's an architect, and um, we wanted 
uh, a three-bedroom townhouse somewhere in the inner city, and so did two of my friends. So we got together and we did a project, and we uh, split the costs. Um, we did you know, a quarter each, and each of us took a townhouse at the end. Um, so it was not a, a sort of a, a deliberate scan of the market to see where the opportunity was. It was just that actually we needed a, we wanted a place to live, and then through doing that, um, you know, other friends and 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 people sort of were like, oh, that's kind of interesting that you're doing that, and it kind of went from there. Um, so what we're doing is is it's pretty much a Balgroupen model where the owners come in and they become the developer and um, and they form part of a management committee and the management committee makes all the decisions about the project on the way through and the benefit for them is that they get a, a, a house at the end of it that they've designed or be part, been part of the design process and they get it for, at cost. Um, I mean, your, your question's about, well, what works and what doesn't, and I suppose I'll just speak about the model that we're doing. I think it works from a control perspective. People people really do enjoy that control and the fact that they can make decisions about um, the trade-offs that you inevitably make through a project around um, budget and quality and all those sorts of things. Um, they um, also get to... Um, buy in a location that they probably couldn't buy in if they were doing it themselves. Um, obviously getting it uh, at cost means that they're getting their house at anywhere from 15 to sort of 25% cheaper than they would on the open market. But where it doesn't work is that we're sort of working within the, you know, the constraints of just the real estate market. So we're competing against for-profit developers. We are competing... Uh, for funding from banks who are very used to funding for-profit developers and so they look at our model through that lens and, and they'll either penalise us, usually penalise us, because we're not, uh, we don't have pre-sales contracts and, and all that sort of stuff. So it's, you know, we need, we need lenders who are prepared to work a bit harder for us and in the current market that's difficult because lending's pretty tough. Um, but it also means that we're only, you know, we're only... We're borrowing 70% of our development costs on these projects, so the partners need to put in 30%. So that's a big constraint on these projects because, uh, I mean, where Nightingale works really well is that the, the owners know that they're buying into quality and they're getting it at a reduced price, but they're also, you know, having to put in a 10% deposit, um, whereas, you know, our, our partners are having to put in 30% along the way of the project. Um, which not everybody can afford, you know. So while we're delivering housing cheaper, the capital requirements are a lot higher and, and there's higher risk because, um, you know, there's no bank in Australia who's going to give you development funding and not ask for joint several guarantees from all of the partners. So it's not everybody's cup of tea. Um, but, you know, I, I think what we've, we've started to do is, is really just create a, uh, a pretty defined process to help people... But, but it is starting to shift that market, uh, that the financial lending market a bit too, and particularly through Nightingale, um, as having demonstrated the success of the model, demonstrated that there is a strong market uh, for that type of housing, and 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 also realising that there's a different risk profile uh, for that type of development, that you know certain lenders are starting to realise that there there is the opportunity to. Um, not, a, not only is it a, a fairly safe bet to lend to a development like that, but also that maybe the lending terms could be actually be better because it should be. risk is lower. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that's a conversation I have a lot. But you know, by the time it gets to a credit department, yeah. uh, you know, I'm not sure they're listening to those sorts of things. But um, and Catherine, from your perspective, especially with with Group and, and your insight there, did you kind of see any you know regulatory shifts within that context which, you know, were more advantageous and whether they, you know, would be... A similar thing could be introduced here. So 
So, um, yeah, my, as you're referring to, my own experiences with Baugruppe in Berlin. So there's been quite a history of this model in Germany since the 60s, but it's really gone crazy since the year 2000. And that now 10% of all new apartments in Berlin are built with this model. And so it's really, it's crazy how different it is over there. It's so established that there's actually a really great website, for instance, called cohousing.de, and that website kind of um, has a whole lot of information about how to structure the contracts, how to get finance. It's, um, the German government has a particular bank that lends to these projects. Um, and they also have these kind of forums where you can see, oh, there's a meeting at a, a local bar over here that you can find out if you want to join one of these projects. So it's really very established. Um, what, yeah, so how, why isn't it happening here? <laughs> I think, um, so there are so many people trying to etch out this model and I think you mentioned Geoffrey London. He's yeah. got a bow gripper underway in Perth at the moment. So he's really cracking into, after 40 years of tireless work, he's finally getting that model off the ground. He did one actually in 1979, 1980 originally, yeah. um, which was more of a townhouse model rather than a apartments. But um, yeah, it, mm. it did sort of demonstrate the kind of improvements in quality and savings in costs that could, be, that could yeah. happen. But yeah, I think when I, I visited three different projects in Berlin and I'd spoke to each of the architects that had been involved and it was really interesting to hear the variety within that one model of types of developments that you get. And one of the big differences is how much the actual community is involved in, in the decision-making process. So at one end of the spectrum, you've got architects that just go out and, and sort out everything. They do the design, they decide how many apartments they're going to be, then they find the purchasers that want to buy into it and they go ahead and they build the project. And um, yeah, the Christian Roth that I was speaking to from Zandroth architects was saying look you know what are they complaining about they get a cheap house it's really good quality and it's got great kind of communal features people don't mind one bit that they're not involved in that minutiae of the decision making process and then right at the other end of the spectrum I spoke to these architects who had gone ahead and they did an apartment building with eight different um, uh, residents and they were saying it was just crazy the emails they'd get at 3am in the morning about which type of tile they wanted in the bathroom and they were saying that actually if you want to do a project like that you need to add the price of one additional apartment to count for all of the changes that people make over the time and so thankfully there is a golden middle <laughs> I spoke to um, the lovely Verena von Beckerach and she um, was involved in a project and with the real typical German kind of precision um, she had come up with a great structure of how to manage these processes. So from the very beginning, they have not only an architect but also a development manager and that development manager sets out exactly how many meetings you're going to have and what's going to be decided in each meeting and, <laughs> and, I, and also, crucially, what will you let people have input into and what will you not? And so in that particular case, they decided they would have a very fixed structure. There was a central um, lift core in the centre and then there was, it was actually a freestanding building with um, beautiful balconies all the way around. And so the facade and the central core were completely fixed. And also they decided that um, they couldn't choose any materials. All the materials for the entire project were quite utilitarian. They are all kind of plywood and concrete and certain windows and you couldn't choose anything else. But the thing that the residents were allowed to choose was the spaces, the layout of each of the rooms. And so it almost became this, this kind of Tetris where they would kind of Tetris each of the apartments around and one family would negotiate with the family next door that they wanted to have one more room and over time they managed to fit together this great project which I visited and was really stunning. And so I think um, definitely getting that balance of right about how much decision these um, residents can make in the final project is really important. And then, Nicola, from your perspective, because as you mentioned, you represent you know, such a variety of different, different groups doing different things. And as we spoke about just prior, there's no kind of currently, current regulatory, I suppose, vehicle that is supporting co-housing. So from your perspective, what have you seen you know, work in an ad hoc way and, and what, what does it need to flourish? Yeah. So actually, I, I think 
the co-op structure itself is a really, really great vehicle for negotiating change over time amongst people. That's what it does. That's what it's designed to do across a whole range of fields, not just housing. So the, the capacity for the, the co-op structure to set a structure that allows a group of people to negotiate amongst themselves and set the rules and, and to work that out, uh, what we run up against relatively frequently, and, and in our co-ops, our, our, our members are not having to make really substantial financial decisions of that nature. Um, but the practice of co-op is not necessarily something that everybody's automatically good at. And, and also, the practice of co-op over time requires work. Like, it, it's actually hard to work with a group of people. When you're talking about it in a deliberative development sense, that's a very intensive period of time and, and you know, would require, I think, quite a lot of support around those interactions to make them work smoothly, not least of which the expectations set right at the start, but the, then the way in which people negotiate. But actually for people who live in buildings, and particularly in a co-housing, there is a difference, I think, between a co-op housing project and a co-housing project, mm. at least in the Australian sense, because in Australia, co-housing nearly always means a trade-off for private space versus public space, or, or shared space, where in, in a co-op model, that's not necessarily the case. It doesn't have to be the case. So uh, but particularly in a co-housing sense where there is shared space, negotiating how that space gets used, not just in its development, but over time, is incredibly important as well. So I think our experience would say you need to put as much effort into the practice of co-oping as you do to whatever it is you're co-oping about. Like, there's a real catch in there. I think that's an important distinction as well that you've picked up on. So generally in Australia, when we talk about co-housing, that's really an ongoing cooperative. So it's this group, whether it's rental or ownership, that um, are for they, they might meet regularly for meetings, they might share meals, they might have certain shared facilities that they regularly use. And um, in contrast, the co-op model, the bow grouper model, is really looking at a terminating cooperative. So in this model, you do go through that intensive process of developing the project together, but then once it's finished, you just create a standard strata model and with a standard body corporate, and who knows, you might never speak to your neighbours again. I think that's often, that's not really what happens. I think <laughs> I've heard that they've been through this painful process together and they all come out the other side as best mates, but, you know, it's, it's a model where it's not about having that ongoing relationship necessarily. I think the other thing that's important is that some of the decisions around, particularly around development, but also around owning and maintaining a building, require a level of expertise that most people don't have. So actually brokering the deal with the group about where you get that expertise from and what is up for debate and what's not mm. is incredibly important. Because otherwise you get people who may have lots of opinions but no basis for those opinions. And <laughs> that's a problem for something that lasts a long time once it's built. Yes. Um, and maybe something that's you could uh, speak to, Tim, in terms of how, how you manage that process with property collectives. But I, I just kind of wanted to turn to, I suppose, all of these models that we've discussed, um, how they could be, A, applied to the Australian market, and B, how they can be scalable. Because I think what Nightingale has proved is that it's, it's you know, impossible to get these projects off the ground and had an incredible you know, groundswell of, of support to do so. But I suppose making them you know, broadly accessible to the Australian market and outside of the middle class as well is, is a challenge. And you know, the fact that Bauer Group is so, so established is, is kind of the step that we need to get to. So maybe, Tim, from, from your perspective, because you're you know, managing property collectives, how do you see that scaling or, or different model scaling in that way? Yeah, it's a really good question and, um, you know, we're very deliberate at the moment around the scale of projects that we're doing. Like we're doing sort of six to eight dwellings. I think probably the largest one I'd be willing to do is maybe ten or so because the group size, because, because our model is so um, intensive with the owners because they're engaged in every step. There's a fair bit of, you know... Um, uh, work required in managing the group. I suppose the key, the way, way we manage that is that we have a really, um, have quite an involved sort of um, dating process before people decide to sort of uh, get involved with us. So we really do sort of explain how the model works and, and what sort of control people have over the project, what sort of decisions they can make and what, you know, right down to what decisions are unanimous, what decisions are majority and all these sorts of stuff. So we set out 
the ground rules around how it all works. And then if people are quite comfortable with that, then they, they buy into it and it tends to make that process run a bit smoother on the way through. Um, so if we take that model, which, which you know, and I'm not up to date with all the different bow group and models, but it seems like it's a pretty pure model from that perspective. I think there's an inherent sort of um, scalability issue with with doing projects of a bigger scale uh, under that model. Um, funding is probably the key one. Like, you know, you, you can have six to eight people going to a bank and um, giving them joint and several, you know, guarantees, but getting 50 or 60 people to do that is just not practical. So I think, um, you know, for me at the moment it's about how do you do sort of more of those projects and how do you sort of resource up to be able to do that and also start to play with the sorts of people that can access those projects in terms of the size of the dwellings and budgets. The answer there, I think, is around funding, um, finding funding partners who understand the model and are going to invest in the model and sort of price risk accordingly. Um, I think the big barrier is, is, is the capital required to get these projects done. And then the other side of it is is probably also um, government support. Like at the moment, we don't really get any... Well, we don't get any government support. But, uh, you know, at a state and local level, I see that there's probably opportunities for um, local and state governments when they're looking at rezoning land or, you know, doing master plans, just, you know, not just divesting those lots... To to for-profit developers, but considering alternative models as part of that mix. Like, you know, there's a big opportunity throughout the city um, where, where you know, councils are rezoning lands to sort of do that. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to make less money, you know. Um, if they do something on deferred terms or something, they probably will make the, most, the same amount of money. It's just um, thinking a little bit differently. Um, yeah, I think that land one is really the biggest challenge. Yeah. And I've definitely heard from Jeremy working with Nightingale that that's real, something they struggle with. As you say, they're competing with um, typical developers. And that is something that definitely they do do in Germany. So when they are, the government is selling land, they do have a series... Like, they often put land solely aside for these bow group projects and they actually have a competition. So different groups kind of propose what sort of community functions are you going to offer to the rest of the community, um, who is your group made of, what... Like, are you offering um, affordable housing as part of your group? And then they kind of... Um, are given time to, once they've been successful to form their group, to come up with their design and to finally get construction financing and so they don't have to pay for the site until they're ready to start building. And I think that's really crucial to support these models. But what was really interesting when I was in Berlin recently was hearing that developers have started doing that process too. They've actually been buying up quite large sites and then slicing them up into smaller portions and selling them to bow group projects. So it's another way to get those things happening. You de-risk you your project. Exactly, that's right. And I, yeah, I have been personally working on a bit of a housing um, master plan in Melbourne and really trying to get in that deliberative development model as a way, because it was a council land site and they're trying to, um, to sell that one. Uh, it's a bit of a battle, um, but I think it's mainly about kind of educating people about these models and the options that there are. I think um, one of the big barriers we have in Australia is that most of our housing is allocated by the market. Um, many other countries have a much bigger role for the state in that process. So, I mean, you, you mentioned, Catherine, um, you know, options on, on government land, uh, which is, you know, something that is used in Germany, it's used in, um, you know, Vienna and, and other places. And um, that's great, and we could do that more here, but... Um, that sort of government land availability is is extremely small, really, in in terms of um, the general land supply and and, and um, particularly land supply for general housing provision. So, um, you know, it's really got to be um, market or ways of, of transforming the market to actually um, make it work for people uh, that that are where we're going to need to to you know in terms of that scaling up question get get the real um, the big change. And I think. What, what, what interests me, you know, as a person who's thought about the housing system as a whole for a long time, is is those 
those points where it's sort of sticking and or where things are stuck or where there's um, a lack of movement are the kind of opportunities. So one, you know, one is that transition from um, you know a, a very low density detached uh, dwelling dominance to a uh, more um, urban and uh, higher density housing um, landscape. Uh, that's one. Uh, you know, as I said before, only seven percent of owner occupied housing is um, is higher density. So there's a sticking spot there. Um, then the sort of um, routes into and out of social housing um, is, is another one of those, and a, a very another interesting um, model which we haven't mentioned so far tonight. Um, the Melbourne Apartments Project, uh, which um, has been quite interesting to me, is, is one uh, you know, particular enterprise, not-for-profit enterprise, uh, providing a route into, not private rental, but a route into home ownership for people leaving the public housing system. So it's a form of, um, so, you know, again, and it, it, like, like Nightingale, like Bagrupin, it, it, it relies on this aggregation of demand within the market to, uh, to then de-risk uh, projects sufficiently to change the equation in terms of the the development uh, financing and, and the cost of production of housing, and that that's that's where the, I think I think we've got to really focus. And one of the things I've been quite interested in, in order to help and support that um, happen, is is the, this idea of, of, of smart markets, which is um, you know you, you know which is the kind of thing that you know, Uber and Airbnb work with. Uh, where you know, using um, the internet really as a way of um, aggregating and, and uh, coordinating demand, but not doing it as a for-profit business like that, but but um, but as a way of actually uh, doing that to, um, in in effect, uh, aggregate and locate demand in particular places, so that the the whole um, that that settlement risk that that, that, that the pre-sales uh, campaign is all about. Um, uh, addressing uh, can can be removed and 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 can sort of create I guess a bit more fluidity in the in the market. There, there is a question that underlies where the costs are being driven from and the, and the way that the Australian housing market works and the effect of negative gearing and capital gains tax. Uh, exemptions that effectively inflate the cost of land or cost of building and mean that you can't run a... Well, not you can't. It makes it very difficult to run housing as a cash flow business, which is why we don't have any institutional investment in, in housing in Australia. And the knock-on effect of that is that it creates home ownership as the pinnacle of a, a housing... Um, Life cycle, if it's the wrong word for it, but you know what I mean, like that. Everybody should be aiming for this. And that's a very sensible thing to do in, in this structure because it is the only tenure that will actually give you direct financial benefits and nobody else gets those benefits unless you own, you actually can't access them. But it means that instead of having a range of people trying to find a housing product and a housing tenure that works for wherever they are in their world right now, you have everybody willing to spend more money than they probably should in being able to access a... a piece of property that they can hold on to and they can control and there is no option to do that in any other way but to own the whole thing. The knock-on effects of that are actually really detrimental for any alternative model to be able to get up and get legs and, and it's kind of the elephant in the room when we start talking about well why isn't this happening already? Well actually because in many many situations financially it actually can't compete. It isn't a level playing field. So not only can it not compete financially, but all of the, the legal and institutional structures for owning an individual owning a title work for an individual owning a title and actually don't work or create significant hurdles if you are not an individual or a couple owning one title. If you're trying to do anything else, there's a whole lot of other hurdles that you have to then play your way through in a minefield. It's even difficult to do it in a transition sense. We're just going to do this and once we've finished, we'll, we'll end up with individual titles. That's hard enough. But if you actually want to hold something in a way that is not that at the end of the day... Sorry. Uh, if you're trying to do that in a way that is not where you're going to end up at the end of the day, the, the, the additional hurdles are a real disincentive for people to be able to, to try and test out alternative ways of accommodating themselves, which is kind of a different notion to owning a house. 
I just might, um, I suppose, have one final question to the panel because I'm mindful of time and, and wanted to get a, a few audience questions as well. Um, so just as a hypothetical, how does everyone think these alternative housing models will develop in Australia within the next 50 years? Do you think they will you know, contribute to housing affordability issue? Do you think there will be kind of sufficient appetite within the market for, for these ideas to grow and, and become you know, a part of a mainstay within, within the property market? I absolutely think that, that there's a huge... I think we're at the very tip of a, of a ground spell. If you, Nightingale's a really classic example of that, but there, there are all sorts of examples of people coming together and playing in the market in a different way. Um, I, I think I personally would really like to see the range of ways that could happen broaden out because right now it's, even the notion of being able to play in a different way only exists if, if you are of probably high income, not even moderate income, and, and you have a kind of access to a range of skills, it'd be nice to, to see ways that that will broaden out, but I think it will happen. I, I'm very hopeful that the, there'll be more kind of support for that, both in a um, support for the development of the kinds of processes and models that are needed to, to facilitate that, to access to land, to a whole lot of things, and actually to different building types as well. You know. And Tim? Uh, I do think it's inevitable. I mean, I thought there'd be eight or nine people here tonight. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a bit of a reflection of the fact that there's a lot of interest in it. And I know with what we're doing, um, you know, in you know 2013, we finished our first project and it was sort of four couples and four townhouses and, and we're now doing uh, 49 townhouses across seven projects in the last three years. And that's just sort of happen quite organically so I can see that there's a pent-up demand and that's just one layer of um, society you know like it's it's it, it, it's hard for a lot of people to access our model at the moment and we're starting to look at ways that we can sort of shift that around um, but yeah I do think it's inevitable I mean it's a function of how long we've been focusing on this problem. You know, I mean, in Europe, they've been looking at, you know, doing this for 100 years. So they've now doing massive, you know, 1,300, you know, dwelling, 13 building um, uh, housing cooperatives where, I mean, there's one in uh, Hunzinger in, in Zurich and I think 50 different collectives got together to fund this 13 building, you know, um, project, which was a mix of social housing and, you know, and, and so you look at that and you go, wow, now we're clearly not there yet in Melbourne, but I can kind of see over the next 50 years uh, that ground's kind of been broken over there and there's a model there for us to look at and go, okay, well, um, I think um, Resilient Melbourne um, is, a, is a project that the City of Melbourne's leading across all of Melbourne Metro, uh, and that's uh, looking at um, resilient communities and they're sort of looking at five different pilot projects this year to sort of study and, 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 and look at how they can support these alternative models, you know, moving forward. So I think it's definitely going to evolve, yeah. Can I, just, I think the, the reason, the function of, of the, this kind of response actually also relates to the, the growing number of people that the existing housing system is not serving well at the moment. Yeah. So that, that's kind of getting very close to reaching tipping point. It's, and a, I think it's that's, a perfect storm, yeah. almost, I reckon. Yeah. And Tom and Catherine? I think definitely if you're looking over the 50-year horizon, and I know this is something that I shouldn't even mention, so touch wood, but we're going to have a number of periods of economic downturn. And I think something that's happened, if you look at the Berlin examples, the times when those deliberative developments really thrived were in periods where land prices had crashed <laughs> and that there was you know, a whole lot of people looking to do something different and it was the time of innovation and when that came came out of those periods of economic downturns. So for the next 50 years, you might see a bit of a, a spurt of that if we unfortunately have that kind of situation. <laughs> Silver lining. <laughs> and Tom? Yeah. Um, yeah, look, we, we have a severe affordability problem. We have an uh, increasing, uh, increasingly uh, spatialised uh, manifestation of social inequality. We have a city here in Melbourne um, that's consuming uh, at, a, at a rate of three times the Earth's resources. So we absolutely need to do something to our housing system uh, to, a, to address this. So, you know, this, you know, as I say, there's some key sticking points where this can actually um, start to uh, address those kinds of, 
of things. And so, there, you know, there is that, that groundswell, but it, it does need a whole-of-system response, and so that's going to be slow uh, as a result. But we need, you know, people like yourselves, uh, you know, actual housing consumers, uh, operating uh, in a different and more um, empowered way within the market, particularly when it comes to um, the kind of higher-density housing that, that, that actually will be needed in order to address, um, you know, sustainable growth issues, but where, um, you know, general people are not uh, actually very well equipped uh, within the way it's provided now to have any agency. Uh, and then we're also going to need not, um, not only empowered, empowered citizens, but we're going to need, a, a, I guess, a policy, a regulatory environment that helps and opens up uh, opportunities um, that needs to be very carefully thought through. Uh, and um, and yeah, and so the roles for different levels of of government is is very important. Um, but then I think there's also a big place for the you know, the cooperative um, sector to to grow. I mean that's been um, yeah, that it's a you know fairly minimal <laughs> in terms of its impact, but it needn't be. And uh, uh, I guess a, 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 almost a destigmatisation, if if that's fair, of, of that sector um, from being um, a kind of uh, you know ultra alternative to being something that is actually, you know, can be, can be mainstream and can actually deliver housing uh, as well is, is, I think, an important route. Thank you. Um, so it'd be great to have a few questions from the audience if, if there were any. I think we'll um, do a bit of a pass around of the microphone. Does anyone have any questions for the panel? Um, hi, it's just a quick one around land um, to Property Collective and maybe the whole panel, but so how does it work? Do the um, six or eight residents come to you and then you find a site or are you competing to buy sites? Yeah, um, it's very rare that six to eight people will come as a group. Um, it's more... We usually have... A, a number of people coming to us saying that they'd like to, you know, live in this area, you know, and then we kind of, a group starts to form around a location more so, and then once we get um, four or five people together who are, who are really committed to doing a project, we'll go out and we'll, we'll find some land and go through the whole acquisition process with those people. Um, and, you know, it'll take us a couple of cracks, but... Eventually, we'll get a site that everybody's happy with, and then um, and then the group basically forms because um, we've got the site, and so we'll we'll form the collective around that site. Um, if we've purchased it with a um, a couple of partners short, um, we then um, just let everybody know that hey, we've we've bought this piece of land, and I think it's sort of human nature that some people are quite happy to sort of commit to an idea and a process and go through that process ahead of time and some people prefer to sort of see that piece of land and go there and go, okay, well, this is what I'm getting involved with. So usually after we've bought a site, it takes, I don't know, uh, six to eight weeks to sort of fill it up. It happens pretty quickly. So that's basically how the collectives form. Yeah. Um, when you guys are speaking about um, housing affordability and forming these co-ops, um, a lot of what the discussion about this has been about is for younger people and middle-aged people buying into these models. But um, my question is around um, ageing people and buying into these co-ops. Um, I've heard stories about older people, um, sort of 50s, 60s, retirement age, um, looking at... Um, making their own co-ops um, as an alternative to institutionalised care. And so I was wondering if you guys think um, any of these models can be used to um, help seniors live independently or if um, you think they will be used more in the future for this purpose. 
I think it's a growing market. I think there's, there's a real groundswell going on at the moment. Um, and I think it comes back to my comment earlier where a co-op structure is a great structure for negotiating change over time. So for groups of people who need additional services, in fact, people with disabilities under the NDIS also is a massive opportunity, I think, to because it gives you the format and the forum for being able to negotiate what is the right set of services for this group at this point in time going forward. Uh, the other thing I'd say about co-op is, is actually the best of co-op seems to emerge as a kind of radical response to a market that's not treating people well. And if you look at the aged care market in Australia at the moment, co-op, here we come. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm seeing it a lot with what we're doing. Um, because we're doing townhouses at the moment. A lot of our townhouses are three and we're doing some four-storey townhouses. It's not obviously necessarily for every downsizer or retiree. So we are getting a lot of people coming to us and who want just a single level. Um, they do, they're coming with friends uh, and they want to band together. There may not be enough for them to sort of form a group, but that's definitely starting to happen. I think, it, I think it's a, a massive... Um, opportunity for people in that situation um, if they want to go through um, a develop if they want to become a developer <laughs> you know that's the other side of it you know if you're yeah. if you're sort of either retired or approaching retirement do you really want to take on that risk a lot of people yeah. approaching retirement now too um, are homeowners, um, often have a very high level of equity in their homes, maybe own them outright even. Um, often those homes are in well-located um, suburbs. So uh, there is, you know, in terms of that land question we were discussing before, there is, I think, an opportunity for people who have that level of equity and, and already own land. Uh, that's a fantastic basis to start from in terms of then embarking on a process like this. That question is kind of solved and that's the hardest question to, to, to deal with. Yeah, I completely agree. I think especially just hearing the types of groups that are forming, the ones that I hear about most are these groups of friends that want to retire together and there's something special about knowing that even if your partner passes away or if you pass away that your friends are there to look after them and I think as, as um, we were just saying, like they're the ones that do have access to equity, they're the ones that are able to make those investments so it's a really good point. Maybe one, one more. Um, we're a group of about 20 women over 50 um, setting up a co-housing um, group in either Dalesford or Castlemaine and we're wondering about whether we should set that up as a co-op or a strata title um, legal entity because on the one hand um, some in the group want to make sure that if they need to go into aged care in 10 years' time that they'll have enough money for a bond um, and there are others who are more concerned with that the, the group itself is ongoing as a, you know, women's organisation. Your I think, thoughts? I think what you highlight is the lack of resource around... Uh, services and tools and resources that would help people work through those options. They don't exist very well. Uh, my organisation is the biggest housing co-op organisation in Victoria, but we, we operate on a particular model and, in fact, the funding or the, the financing, the, the resource we use is resource that comes from the rent from the members of the co-ops that are part of us. So actually we don't have a lot of capacity to be able to invest in the development of new models and, and testing new models aside from that and that, that's a gap because what you need is a, a resource that can help you step through a really complicated process in a legal sense, in a development sense, in, in a community development sense. There's a whole lot of things in there. So I think one, one of the things we talked about earlier, the barriers, uh, some... Um, external support for being able to resource that kind of stuff would go a long way to enabling the creation of models that could then be replicated or, or tweaked or whatever. So there isn't an easy answer for you right now and that might be part of what we all need to advocate for. But I, I think, and I don't know the answer to your question, but I reckon looking at... You've almost got two... You've got two distinct stages and I'm not sure what your project is, but you've got probably doing a development... And then you've got the running of the development and it may be worth separating the two almost because it's, you know, one enterprise is actually standing up the development and getting that done and then it, that, that's done and then the next phase is how you're going to run and maintain it. 
So that might be, there might be something in that. I should just say that um, we're going to use a social housing provider as our developer, and in exchange for payment, they're going to retain 20% of the units that we'll pay for that will be for social housing, women who fit our group but who don't have money to buy in, who need that's long-term secure housing. And that's a great model too because social housing providers um, often have that um, track record in development, which means they're able to get development finance, they're able to they have those relationships with financiers um, that, uh, that you know, a group of you know, random people uh, don't necessarily have and, it, and that's a good way to... I mean, that, that's, that's fantastic you're doing that. Sorry. <laughs> um, well, thank you for the questions, and I'd just like everyone to join me in thanking our, our speakers for their time tonight. Um, if you haven't already, I urge you to subscribe to openjournal.com.au because we do a number of these talks and then publish a lot of um, pieces based around this topic and in really in what we've discussed tonight in terms of that intersection between design and investment and regulation and I suppose what we can do in that, in that middle. So thank you again for coming. Hey, Laura, could I add a couple of plugs, if that's okay? <laughs> Go for it. Firstly, so Tim and I are going to do an event as part of Melbourne Design Week in March, and we're really going to take that model of um, we'll have 30 participants and we'll run them through that process of forming a cooperative in a really high-level way. The second thing is that um, together with Andy Fergus, I'm teaching a subject in the second semester of this year at the University of Melbourne. So if you're an architecture or urban design student and you'd like to go on a travelling studio to the Netherlands and hear all about these models, please come to the balloting. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>